Hello and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. I'm your host, Katie Halper. It's been a while, guys. Uh, hi, everyone. Hi, listeners. I've missed you. Have you missed me? I'm going to take that silence as yes. Reggie, it's great to see you. How many hey, weeks Katie. has it been? It's been, actually, wow, it's been three weeks. Wow, it's been seven hours and three weeks. Really? The Rent song? The Rent? No, that's Sinead O'Connor. It's been seven hours and fifteen days since she took your love away. Or actually, it's Prince, oh, but Sinead oh, O'Connor made it famous. Oh, nothing yeah, compares course. to yeah, you. Of course, okay, yeah. all right. Gabe, unfortunately, is not here, but he sends his regards. He's going back to Washington, D.C. to celebrate Thanksgiving, the very problematic holiday that is Thanksgiving. We'll We'll have to talk about that on another episode because there's just too much to go into for this one. But, Reggie, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? I'm actually going to be working on Thanksgiving. Yeah, unfortunately. So Thanksgiving for me will be, you know, continuing to speak truth to power by pressing buttons that is an important way to do it that don't never estimate the power of buttons right to change humankind as margaret mead once said right i believe i'm I'm Uh, quoting her anyways you guys all know reggie is the the gamelon player of engineering on the katie halper show and you can listen to the katie halper show every wednesday from 6 p.m to 7 p.m on wbai.org 99.5 fm we have a great show for you today with artist and writer Molly Crabapple. So excited to talk to her about her new book, Drawing Blood. But before we do that, we have a special live report from Los Angeles where we have a stringer, special stringer, specifically to cover this story. And Kate Levin teaches in the undergraduate writing program at University of Southern California. California. We have Kate Levin. And Kate Levin is a friend, colleague of the show, big fan of the show. And Kate Levin happened to have gone to summer camp with me, Camp Kinderland, the summer camp founded by secular socialist Jewish uh, I'm still not holding that Yiddish against speakers. You. Thank I, you. It's actually how I got my job here. I made a documentary about it called Kami Camp that you can I, I, see December 14th at I, Anthology Film Archives. I remember. Right? And Kate Levin, she's a writer who's published in the Boston Globe, The Nation, and the New York Times. Can you believe it? Wow. Kate, are you there? I'm here. Thanks for having me, Katie and Reggie. I'm a big fan of the show. Thanks, Kate. Hello. <laughs> sorry, Hello, Reggie. Sorry that Gabe couldn't be here. I know that you're, you and Gabe are big fans of each other as well, but he sends his regards. Likewise. Likewise. <laughs> so, Kate, what can you tell us about this labor movement that you're involved in? What are you doing? You're a rabble-rouser. You're like, you've been called the Josephine Hill of your generation by me right now. I learned from the best. The big exciting news is that at USC, we filed for a union election. My colleagues and I, who are non-tenure track faculty at three schools within USC, have filed for an election. And uh, we're looking forward to holding that election sometime, I think, in the next month or so. And uh, then moving forward, hopefully, to a process of collective bargaining uh, with the university. Great. Now, it's interesting. There's kind of an ominous headline in the L.A. Times (laughs) that says, USC faculty moves ahead with union election plan despite warning of increased hostility. (laughs) What is this increased hostility of which it speaks? 
Well, it's it's really interesting. The only kind of negative vibe, if, if I may use the word vibe. You may, you may. <laughs> Thank you. The castle um, has come from the uh, administration itself. My hope would be that the university administration would just stay neutral and, and sort of say, okay, well, you know, if faculty want to unionize, and if that's what you guys vote to do, uh, we trust that you know it's in your best interest, but that hasn't really been the case. The message that we've gotten from the university so far has been one that's very discouraging, one that's not supportive of the union effort. So, uh, you know, I suppose that's the hostility <laughs> right. that they're referring to. No threats to break anyone's kneecaps or anything. <laughs> or not that I'm been. aware of. Okay. No, no, I haven't seen any Pinkertons on campus. Nice. Yet. Although you never know. They don't wear Pinkerton hats anymore, do they? No, I mean, the you fedoras? Tell me. Unclear. <laughs> so you're, you're tapped into the Pinkerton scene. I am. So. I'm capped into it. Get it? <laughs> but so, Kate, are you facing any resistance from kind of the larger pu- public, the larger population, even the labor movement, in terms of your particular position? I mean, how I'm sure you get the criticism that, oh, you guys are a bunch of academics. You're not risking your lives on a an assembly line, no one's losing a hand in a, in a meat cleaver or anything. Mm-hmm. What do you say, what say ye to those people? What, what really got me on board, look, I, you know, I signed the union card right away because I dun, believe dun, in dun. unions. Yep, and I believe that they're, you know, the most important mechanism we have for fighting for economic justice in this country. But what really turned me into a union activist in this effort on campus was going to a big demonstration that was held on and around campus on April 15th as part of the Fight for 15 movement. So it was university instructors, it was fast food workers, healthcare workers, child workers, all of us together marching, basically saying, look, you know, we have a common denominator here, which is that, you know, we all want a greater say in how we do our work. We all want fair compensation. And absolutely, of course, university professors have a position of, of privilege relative to, let's say, fast food workers. But from my perspective, one of the best things we can do for workers in general in all sectors is strengthen the labor movement, right? Because we know unions drive wages up. We know that unions help close the uh, racial wage gap, the gender wage gap, that they promote social mobility from one generation to the next, right? So, And I think us forming um, just kind of can help, you know, help engage people in the labor movement in general, solidarity. You know, the janitors at our university are organized, for example, they, you know, they're in a union, just won a new union contract. And at their contract rally, um, the rally kind of in support of the janitors was faculty members who are, you know, part of our organizing effort here. So I think that, you know, the union effort among faculty can only help strengthen ties among workers in all sectors. And we already see that solidarity happening right on our campus. Great. Well, we will be checking in with you again, Kate. And next time we talk, we can put to sleep that myth that, oh, we don't need unions. They were great before, but we don't need them anymore. And whenever people say that, I'm like, that's fine, but you should also never take the weekend off. And uh, we should also also get rid of corporations. Then we can get rid of unions. <laughs> I don't know if they're actually making a communist argument, but that's the only way I see it happening. In solution of the state. Too. What'd you say? And sick time. And sick time. Yeah, true. Time. Right. Basic protections. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I, the basics. I, the weekend. No we all deal. benefit from the labor movement every day. So. Yes, we do. We do. Si se puede. Thank you, Kate <laughs> Levin, um, professor, adjunct, fighting for her rights, fighting for the rights of her fellow workers and writer. And she's working on a memoir that I've had the, the privilege of reading a little bit of, and it's pretty amazing. So I'm glad we got to talk to you before you blow up into a star who has no time for us.
Okay. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Reggie. Thanks, um, Thanks Kate. Talk to you soon. Happy Thanksgiving. You I'm Have sure you'll talk show. about okay. how colonialism was terrible for the Native Americans, <laughs> as you know we me. all should on Thanksgiving. Yeah, all right. Absolutely. Okay. Take care, guys. Bye, Kate. All right. And coming up next is Molly Crabapple. But before then, we're just going to take a very short musical break. We got rings of dirt around our necks and we talk like auctioneers and we bounce like chicks and we smell like <laughs> and when we walk down the street all the boys line up to throw themselves at our feet I say I think he likes you you say I think he do too I say go and get him girl before he gets you, I'll be watching you from the wings. I will come to your rescue if he tries anything. We're back on the Katie Halper Show. So excited to have Molly Crabapple about her new book, Drawing Blood. Really great book, has great illustrations. to page turner. And she's a big activist artist, if you don't know about her. Molly, welcome. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me. It's really exciting to have you here. The book is amazing. A lot of the people who have praised you, by the way, have been on the show. But of course, we wanted you because of who you are, independent of that. I didn't have to use my uh, my connections. No, you didn't have to pull strings. But it's funny because Margaret Cho calls you the artist of our time. She is really, really kind. Yeah, no, but she's good taste also. Molly Crabapple is, as everyone knows, an artist and writer in New York City and her memoir, Drawing Blood, is coming out December 1st, 2015. She's a contributing editor for Vice. She's written for the New York Times, the Paris Review, Vanity Fair, The Guardian, CNN, and Newsweek. And, of course, you illustrated Matt Taibbi's New York Times bestseller, The Divide. I did. I did. Um, me and Matt hung out one time in misdemeanor court, which is basically the waiting room for institutional racism. And oh, nice. I, like I, uh, I got yelled at by a court officer who thought I made him look less than pretty. Oh, really? Were you not? Did you like do it from below, capture a double chin or something? I, I, felt, I, I felt I was only accurate to his soul as well as to uh, his physical demeanor, but uh, he yelled at me and tried to say that I couldn't draw in the courtroom, and then I pass it, passed it around like a note in school. Nice. To multiple people or just to Yeah, it's, it's to multiple oh, people. It's all the guys who are hanging out board there. So tell us about how you started. You, you talk about this in your memoir, but I want listeners to understand how you started doing art, why you started it, what kind of refuge it offered you, how much in your blood it was. I've been drawing, drawing blood. Oh my God. I, I've been drawing since I was four. It's all I can do. I cannot imagine a world where I can't draw. If I had my hands cut off, I would probably draw with my mouth. Mm -hmm. I, I just, I or just my draw. left foot. Yeah, well, if I, if I was missing, if it's missing my feet, like okay. I, literally right. if I had any part of me that had movement, I would be drawing with it. Mm. I, I, my family, are artists since my great grandfather. My great grandfather was a member of a revolutionary organization called the Bund, which was a Jewish socialist, anti-Zionist, anti-Zarist in his day uh, organization. And he had to, I think his uh, flight from Russia was partially encouraged by that affiliation. But he was an artist. Um, my mom is an artist. My great uncle's an artist. I grew up in a family where art was not some sort of airy thing that was super fancy that you you could never do. It was just that's my mom's job. Right. So it was a profession, not just a calling. Yeah, it was a trade. trade it right. was a, absolutely a trade. I grew up drawing. My mom always helped me drawing. Her style is a real influence on me. I think she draws like me if I like maybe I would if I was a better person, a more cheerful person. So she's the chipper Molly Crabapple. Yeah, maybe maybe that's it. Though I, yeah, I, 
a, a sweet, a sweet natured Molly Crabapple more right. than Chipper. And what about your father's influence on you? Because you're very political in your art. Um, the content, the scope of your work, what you do is is really not at all abstract or removed from reality or from politics or from struggle. So, um, can you tell us a little bit about? the influence of your father on your politics? My dad is um, a, La- a Latin American studies professor. Uh, he's from Puerto Rico. He's a Marxist, and I was really influenced by his politics. He would give me Emma Goldman biographies when I was a kid or uh, Huey Newton's revolutionary suicide. When I was a little girl, he made up a character called uh, Jean... Well, he was a real historical figure, but he reinterpreted him. It was uh, Lafitte the Communist Pirate that would, uh, that, oh, would nice. sail, that would sail around the Caribbean uh, liberating uh, sugar plantations. Would he say, instead of our, would he be like, uh, our, like our <laughs> collective? That's, how about that? How about that? Nosotros. Yeah, exactly. And nuestro or whatever. Okay, so you got politically educated by him, and it sounds like on your mother's side you did also. I, I did. I mean, my mom, my mom's family also, you know, these were like anti-war crazy artists. My great-grand, or my great-uncle, he, God, he's probably the only Jewish pacifist in the world during World War II. How oh, you, my God! How do you, like, the, wow. it was just, it was just him, man. Wow. So he was a real committed, like, because I'm, there, there are people who are, believe in nonviolence for pragmatic reasons. Yeah. They're people who believe in it, you know, most of the time. But that's a real. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I literally think it was probably only him. Right. Would be how I right. put that. I on. think Bayard Rustin was also a pacifist at that time too, which is, you know, I mean, it's funny to think of anyone black or Jewish being a pacifist during World War II. But it happened, and people probably don't know this because your name, obviously, Molly Crabapple, does not reveal your true name or your ethnicity. But you're what I like. Let's see, what what can we call it? You're a. Um, Arroz con matzo ball. <laughs> yeah, I'm a Puerto Rican Jew. Puerto Rican Jew. Yeah. Yes. So tell us about that cultural combo. We talk a lot about this because um, I'm Jewish, but I look more Latina. Gabe Pacheco is not here; is Latino, but he looks more Jewish. And Reggie just observes. I'm just yeah. Yeah. So you're more like Juan Epstein. Yeah, I'm more Geraldo Rivera, unfortunately. Oh, my gosh. oh yeah, yeah. we don't need Rivera. to. Re- well, yeah. we'll, well, we'll say you're like Juan Pagan Teitelbaum. He yeah. went to my summer camp. Nice, cool guy. Nice. Lives in Puerto Rico. We'll say you're like him. Um, it's weird. I mean, especially because like I look white right. and I have all the white privilege in the entire world, and even like my real last name, which is a Puerto Rican last name, it's not a stereotypically Puerto Rican last oh, name. Um, it, if you Google it, everyone who has that last name is from Bayamon. But in America, why right. would anyone know that? Yeah. Right. So. I had like like this, all the white privilege that like any other like gothy looking pale chick would have, but I also like don't, extra white privilege. Yeah, but like I also just like don't come from like a white family half right. of it, you know. Right. So do people ever say racist things in front of you? And, oh yeah. And then you're like, oh, I'm actually yeah, like, yeah. That's Puerto Rican. Yeah. They're like, oh, I didn't mean that. I, and, I was just kidding. Or... And then the other thing that's like was kind of weird about it is, unfortunately, my grand my um my bolito he had like a lot of um internalized mm-hmm. racism right. himself, even though he was very dark. And when I was born, that the first thing he said when he saw me as like a little baby was Blanca. Oh my gosh! Because he wow. was like so happy to have produced like a white grandchild. Because right. right. I mean, that's like Puerto Rican society like right. people's heads that way. Right. Was he happy with quote unquote good hair? Also. Um. Well, he had. I mean, they um they were um dark because they were indigenous. Like, okay. So they they all had oh not yeah. the Af- no African yeah. So what do your parents think about your art? By the way, uh, they're amazing and supportive. I I couldn't feel more lucky in the world to to you know have them and my mom. 
has always been such a great influence on me. And she's also been such a great person for teaching me to be really like cynical about corporate machinations. Um, I, I feel so lucky to have the parents I do. What's really fascinating about your work, Molly, is that I can open the newspaper or go online, read a story, and I feel like every terrible thing that's going on in the world, you've actually kind of addressed through your art, right? So there's <laughs> Oh, God, I hope not. I, yeah. No, well, there's a, I know, it's an interesting compliment, right? But um, so, of course, the murder of Laquan McDonald in Chicago, you wrote about uh, nine months after he filmed Eric Garner's killing, the cops are trying to put Ramsey Orta behind bars. There's all these stories about hatred of Syrian refugees. You've written about Syria. You've written about Gitmo. You've written about prisoners. You've written about basically every issue. So what what to you was the most kind of shocking, unexpected thing that you've ever covered or the, the thing that most changed you? There, there are a few things. I mean, Gitmo, going to Guantanamo was definitely... I, I don't know. That that was like the – how do I put it? I, I'm trying to like – I'm groping for a non-cliched way to put it. But that was, I guess, my confrontation with the really, really bad in America. I mean, not that – obviously, obviously, you know, I, I, I had seen bad things before. Obviously, I was not naive about it. But there's something about being in a place which is – you know, this is a, a – camp where innocent men, hundreds of innocent men have been tortured and we're continuing to be being tortured by force feeding. And which is actually the rectal force feeding can be considered and classified as a sex crime because it is. Well, yeah. Yeah. um, Yeah. um, It's it's because it's not. Yeah, exactly. It's not at all necessary to do. No, no. Yeah. It's in part. That's part of their plan is to humiliate them, rape them, put them in pain. Yeah, yeah, obviously, yeah. It's I mean, so sadistic, it's, yeah. It's, so you're in this place where, like, the, you know, torture is going on. And also, not just torture, but indefinite detention itself is a form of torture. I mean, these guys, you know, they're kept there for no reason. And this, like, Kafka-esque hellscape, never knowing when they're going to see their kids again. I heard you talk about this with Joe Rogan on his podcast. And this is so important because I think that lots of people know that what's going on in Gitmo is terrible and Guantanamo Bay and it's a violation of rights. But something that you really hammered on, which I think is so important, is that it's not just that, which is a terrible thing in itself, but these people, for the most part, are people who are just randomly rounded up, right? Can you talk about that a little bit? One of America's brilliant strategies was they dropped flyers on Afghanistan uh, at the start of the war where they offered $5,000 for turning in uh, terrorists who they identified as Arabs, basically. And Afghanistan is a very, very poor country. $5,000 is a fortune in Afghanistan. Afghanistan um, is also a country with like very uh, strong, you know, familial and tribal bonds that it, with, without this necessarily the same regard for outsiders sometimes. It's basically led to a spate of kidnappings and people being rounded up by the Northern Alliance or being rounded up just by pe- other people in their area because of grudges, because of money that was owed. And then being sold to the Americans. And once the Americans got them, the person's like, I'm not a terrorist. I mean, like the Americans didn't care. They wanted terrorists. They wanted terrorists so bad. You should read Anand Gopal's book, No Good Men Amongst the Living, which is the most uh, astoundingly brilliant work of journalism that really focuses on uh, how uh, selling other people to Guantanamo Bay uh, became almost an industry in Afghanistan and an established method of revenge against people you had beefs with. So you had all these guys that ended up there. And out of the uh, about 800 people that have gone through Guantanamo, uh, there have been seven convictions. Seven. 
some of those are highly, 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 highly questionable or are not war crimes at all. For instance, Omar Khadar, who is a child, he's 15, was accused of throwing a grenade at a group of U.S. soldiers who were storming his compound and killed everyone he was with. And we would consider to be heroic, patriotic behavior if it were done here against an foreign army. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It's killing a soldier is not a war crime. Um, A soldier who's attacking you. And, you know, he was horrifically tortured and finally is out of incarceration now. But And then of everyone else, I think there's like 20 people they even intend to charge with, with anything. The rest of them are all stuck in this horrible bureaucratic limbo where... Because they've been smeared as the worst of the worst terrorists in the world, Congress fearmongers and so makes laws that says that they can't be transferred back to the U.S. The majority of them are from Yemen, which is a country being systematically destroyed by Saudi Arabia right now. And they won't send them back there. And there aren't really that many willing third-party countries to take them. Right. I mean, these people ought to be, like, honestly given really, really, really lavish pensions in the U.S. Yeah, system. they should be paid indemnities. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's so funny. It's not funny. It's... It's so frustrating because it reminds me so much of the discussion we're having now, this fear-mongering about Syrian refugees and what so many politicians in the United States are doing. And it was a Democrat who used the internment of Japanese Americans as a reason to justify not letting Syrians in. He wasn't doing this to say this is why we need to. He actually pointed to a period that the United States has officially apologized for and recognized as a dark chapter. And he uses that to justify policy. It's so crazy to me. Every, everything about the discourse on Syrian refugees here is disgusting. I mean, it fills me with like a rage that's so visceral that it's hard for me even to speak about because I have, you know, friends who are, because of the work I've been doing, I have friends who are Syrian refugees. And America barely takes any. It barely planned to take any. It was going to take uh, 10,000 over five years, uh, which is nothing whatsoever. Its vetting process is ludicrous. It's two years long. So these people are rotting in camps for two years. The European response of forcing people to who have money to buy plane tickets every person who comes to europe has at least a thousand dollars because that's what it costs to pay a smuggler's fee they force people to walk like animals across the european continent they ban them from hotels they ban them from taxis just because of their passport so disgusting when the u.s responded to the paris attacks the way that it did when the politicians did it was insane because it was doing exactly what the people who were behind the Paris attacks wanted us to do, right? Like, we're giving them free PR, right? Exactly. I mean, ISIS loves when people are scared of them. That's their entire modus operandi, too. Well, not just them, but when we're racistly and when we're Islamophobic, right? No, absolutely. I mean, they deliberately, they brought a fake Syrian passport to the site of the attack. And they did that because they knew that that would lead to persecution of refugees and also to Islamophobia. And and they've spent all summer making propaganda films against refugees. And then the people are that much more susceptible to be radicalized when they see the U.S. reacting in an irrationally Islamophobic way, right? Because the people who are fleeing Syria are fleeing the exact kind of people who were behind. That's actually not true. Oh, Um, okay. So the vast majority of people who are fleeing Syria are fleeing Assad. It's terrible for different reasons, but not at all Islamist. He's a a secular moderate murderer as opposed to um, a religious murderer, you know. But so the vast majority are fleeing the government. Many, many people are also fleeing um, extreme poverty in these refugee camps. I was recently in Iraqi Kurdistan in Domiz. I interviewed people who had fled from every side of the war. Some had fled from Jabhat al-Nusra, their house. Some had fled from arrest in Damascus. Some had fled from ISIS. Like they had fled from 
literally every single armed group there. Some had fled from military conscription. But the reason that they were trying to get out of Domiz wasn't because they were in immediate danger. It was because they didn't want to spend their entire lives living, you know, under a tent with no electricity, like, and not enough food and their kids not going to school. You know, sometimes I, I feel that while the Syrians are all refugees and while it's the legal status of refugees are very important, I sometimes feel that demonizing economic migrants uh, underesti- underestimates how violent poverty is. Right. Like, unless it's a, an act of war, yeah. um, like you're fleeing physical violence yeah. and rape, then what's the big deal? Exactly. Whereas very often poverty, I mean, poverty is a is an incredibly cruel violence in its own right, right, too. Right. That's a really good point. I mean, people from Mexico and Central America risk life and literally limb on, like, the beast, that train because it's the poverty is so bad. I mean, there's also tons of violence there, too, but it's often the, the most common thing that they're fleeing, right? And, and, and they're not necessarily extricable. Yeah. Right. What is the story that you were telling me you were really interested in now that you were involved in that the media has been neglecting? Can you tell us about that? One of the stories that I spent a lot of time on, I spent nearly a year in, on it, actually, was a story of these prisoners who are called the Dallas Six. These were uh, six black long-term solitary confinement prisoners in Pennsylvania who are incredibly brave men who were whistleblowing to a local human rights organization called the Human Rights Coalition about um, racism and torture and abuse and horrific conditions in SCI Dallas. This is Dallas, Pennsylvania. This is Dallas, Pennsylvania. When the Human Rights Coalition published their report, a copy was mailed to one of these prisoners, Andre Jacobs, and the guards intercepted it and used it as a checklist of people to abuse. So... One night, they were beating one of the whistleblowers who had contributed, another man who had contributed, named Isaac Sanchez. And the Dallas Six protested by covering their cell windows with their sheets, which was an established means when you were in the hole in SCI Dallas to attract the attention of a supervisor. The hole being solitary confinement. Yeah, the the hole being solitary confinement. Upon seeing this, instead of allowing these men to speak to their lawyers, which is what they asked for, allowing them to speak to the media... The prison sent in riot squads. They sent in guys with tasers, electrified shields, batons. They filled their cells with tear gas, hauled them out, beat them very, very badly, cut off their clothes, stuck hoods over their heads, soaked them in tear gas, and sent them off to other prisons. And then when one of the prisoners, a very accomplished jailhouse lawyer named Carrington Keyes, sued the DA for not protecting him from this violence, the DA turned around and charged them all with felony rioting and charged Carrington with six counts of assault against these guards. And there's video of the, what happened. I, I've seen the video. There was no assault. There was there was nothing. There was just a a very very emaciated and small man being horrifically attacked by five uh, guys in in riot gear and gas masks. And this case has been dragging on and on. It hasn't been getting media attention. I think part, in part because it's in a Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania. And two of the guys have plea bargained for no jail time. One of the guys, he fought the charges, and I think he he won, but he got a lesser charge with no jail time. But there are these three guys left, uh, Dwayne Peters, Andre Jacobs, and Carrington Keys. And these guys are activists, and they're fighting this because it's unjust. And And how did you become involved in the... Because Carrington Keys' mother, uh, Chandra Delaney, had a press conference that um, unfortunately was very, very, very uh, ill-attended, but... How did you happen to come across it? Activist mailing lists. Oh, wow. I I saw it, and I just became interested in it because these guys were in solitary, but they were charged with rioting. And I thought, that's semantically impossible. Rioting is a group activity. 
Right. Yeah. I did a I did a six thousand word feature on it for Vice, and we were able to put the videos online. And I, I, did, I did drawings. I, I also um, wrote a lot about it. I interviewed uh, two of the guys in person, uh, Andre and Carrington. They're both, I mean, I- incredibly just like charming, smart guys who um, are really thoughtful and really, really politically invested and, you know, really amazing, amazing, very admirable activists. And can you talk about the drawings that you did about this story? Sure. I mean, I did portraits of both of the guys, but I also did things like I drew stills from the video, you know, where uh, Carrington has the hood over his head and these massive, massive, obviously all white guards, you know, kind of manhandling him. Or I drew what the solitary cell looks like. Uh, One of the details that was so um, uniquely uh, skin crawling to me about those cells was that there's no ventilation. There's like a window, but it's covered with plexiglass. Okay, that's it's like... It's so weird because you'd think that they would have better PR about it, about how they're depriving people of their liberty. I think that they realize that people don't care about black prisoners okay, right. and, uh, and so that they can get away with right. it. So what is it that they're hoping to accomplish now? Like, and what can listeners do? There's a website that's Support Dallas 6. It's S-C-I... Dallas. Dallas6.blogspot.com. Yeah, that's, that's, that, yeah okay. that, that's run by Chandra, uh, okay, who's great. Carrington's mother, and they can keep up to date there. Uh, I know that Chandra is planning to do a march and a vigil in February when they have their next court date. And that looks like it is uh, February 1st, 2016, so coming up. Yeah, February 1st, 2016. Uh, and I know that she would really appreciate anyone who would like to come out there and show their support. Great. So we'll link to that. Going back to the the Guantanamo Bay story, where do you stay when you're when you were doing that? Uh, we stayed in tents. So you weren't staying in resort facilities. <laughs> no, I mean the second time I was there, there was like Motel Six type thing that people stay at. But the first time, yeah, we stayed in, in army tents that they just sectioned out Got with it. plywood. Remember Rumsfeld and Cheney were trying to pretend it was some kind of vacation. Not that we ever take them seriously or <laughs> like assume that they're telling the truth. It, it's but. not. It's not like the prisoners can see the sea. They have a number of sort of disconcerting things there. They have a gift shop that sells oh Guantanamo themed merchandise. Uh, like, like what lighters and stuff or you can get a mug that says guantanamo bay dive in or a t-shirt that says it don't get mo better than this oh my god mo better you guys you got that pun get, it don't okay. get, get mo better than this that's amazing they have like karaoke bar you can do pottery there kayaking. they have a karaoke bar yeah they have karaoke bar mcdonald's everything that would be at a normal military base right. what projects are coming up for you Oh, God, after this book? Um, yeah. And what was it? Was this how different was this from everything else that you've done? I had this delusion that writing a book would be just like writing a lot of essays that you all put together. And that was totally wrong. This is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Everyone's been asking me what comes next. And I almost just want to say, like, I want to hide out somewhere with a bunch of books and whiskey. And, and then, like, after I get all this burnout out of me, I'll figure out what comes next. And by the way, it's drawn... Speaking of drawing blood, it's drawn quite an amount of uh, praise from people like Pat Oswald, who said Molly Crabapple's pen is a scalpel and she's not afraid to turn the blade on herself. Beautifully excruciating. Joss Whedon gave it a blurb. Chris Abani, Matt Taibbi. How do you know Pat Oswald? I did a poster for one of his shows. Oh, cool. And right. he, he's really cool. I actually drew his daughter uh, just as like a little gift recently. He's a great. He's just like really cool guy. And this book is just great because it takes us from Paris to Marrakesh, Morocco. I went to Morocco, too, by the way. Uh, I like your story about food poisoning. (laughs) Ironically, I got food poisoning. Everyone warned me in Spain about the food in Morocco, and I was really paranoid about it. I went there, had amazing food, didn't get sick at all. 
took the ferry back, was in this Spanish town, Algeciras, in the south, ate shrimp, took the train from southern Spain back to Madrid, and my f- two friends and I got totally nauseated, threw up the other stuff. It was like a Sophie's choice for me. I had to figure <laughs> out which to prioritize. Like, do I sit on the toilet and uh, vomit on myself, or do I vomit in the sink and do whatever else on myself? Of course, my Spanish friends, because the lefties in Spain are super nationalistic, even yeah. if they're not, a, even when they're not like Basque or Catalan. And he was like, it is not the... Spanish shrimp. It was the broccoli on the ferry, the, Mar- <laughs> the Moroccan broccoli. I was like, I don't think so. I don't think uh, it's a broccoli that did it. But um, yeah, it's like this is. It reads like an adventure book, and then you have all these different worlds that you're in. Like, and it's so funny because when I was reading this, you're like, so then I was working with the Suicide Girls, and then I was hanging out with this artist and that artist and then I turned 20 but it's so funny I feel like you have all this life under your belt you're like then I turned 19 then for my 21st birthday like you were so young you had already experienced so much stuff it's because I was a bad student that's actually the the, the real reason because other people uh, were earnestly learning at a good university right. they eventually got a degree out of whereas I was cutting class at Fashion Institute of Technology which I dropped out of so you get lots of life experience though not necessarily a lot of credentials you make this really interesting and important point about how you sent a bunch of postcards to different art directors I believe and yeah. then someone at the New York Times noticed you right and you said something like um, of course you need talent but it's talent isn't enough and if you say that it's all about talent then you're spitting in the face of broke talented people can you talk about that more oh god yeah so especially with art because art much more than writing for instance is something that's you need um, material objects to do it well like you need paints and canvases and a room that actually has light and isn't pitch dark all day you know you need certain things that just cost money in a way that writing perhaps is not quite so bound by then you also need to have people who are in positions of power actually see your work. And since I'm 32, not 22, I was coming of age before like websites and social media and Twitter. So you needed to actually, I mean, in my day, this sounds so archaic. You would buy a mailing list of art directors and then you would get postcards printed of your work and mail physical postcards to like hundreds of art directors. And this was how people got work and sounds so, so old school. But how else were you going to get your work found by people unless maybe you went to like a really nice college and your teacher hooked you up, but I didn't. And so I felt like there was this really disgusting thing where people who had all sorts of breaks given to them would just ignore all of those breaks and then be like, it's pure talent. And they tell other people, you know, just get, just get by on your talent. But those other people might not have had those breaks. And so they would just be trying to get by on their talent. They wouldn't get anywhere. And they wouldn't know why. And they would just assume they were give up. And I feel like it's really important to discuss the actual machinations of how you get jobs and how things work. Because the alternative to trying to do your dreams and like trying really hard in that like very, very practical and like hustly way is just that rich kids get everything always. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Or and the the other takeaway from that, if you look at that, is like, yeah, somehow these people are more talented. You're like, no, there's there's stuff that goes into that. Like so, ma- so many yeah. things. Right. And you just you describe meeting someone who says that, oh, I didn't do anything. I was just discovered. He was a brilliant right. painter. It's no slight against him. But he was this like fancy painter or whatever. And I did that obnoxious thing that young kids do where they beg the person to get coffee with them. And he did show up quite late and hungover. But no, no, no bad on that. And but I was asking him, I was like, how did you do it? And he's like, oh, man, you know, like just happened, I guess. And then, you know, I realized he went to like a really elite school. And while 
while he was an amazing painter, he also had teachers who actually were in a position of power who could, you know, hook him up with stuff, whereas I certainly didn't. As an artist, I'm wondering what you think of the way that visual images have been used to document violence, police violence in particular, both to use against police, but also the way it's been sometimes insufficient, like with the Eric Garner case, like we had video of him. Now, I don't think at all that the takeaway is body cams don't work. We shouldn't have them. I think they're necessary, but not sufficient. But what do you think of that as someone who works in visual mediums? I think that while uh, photos are incredibly, incredibly, incredibly crucial as proof of these crimes. And also, I just want to say that like a cell phone cam is always better than a body cam, in my opinion, because the police don't have control of it. Right. While it's incredibly crucial, the photo alone cannot stand up to a very, very vested power structure. You know, it needs the photo and organizing. It needs the photo and militant protest. It needs the photo and all of these other things. But the photo alone can't do it. It's like you have the photo and then people need to force the government to do something about it. Right. And frame it. Not yeah. literally. I mean, be nice you know, frame it. It'd be an interesting art project, actually, like taking these terrible pictures and putting them on a mantle as if they're some kind of domestic photo project. But right, you need to have control of the narrative. So they can't say, oh, yeah, this guy, Eric Garner, is being killed, but he was out of shape as if you only are murdered if you can run a triathlon or something. I mean, like, a photo alone cannot defeat white supremacy. That's, that's right. all it is. There, and there's a lot more that needs to go into that. Well, thank you so much, Molly Crabapple. This, wow, time flies when you're having fun and talking to a really cool guest. Um, this has, of course, been the Katie Halper Show. We'll be back next week, 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. We'll be talking to Professor Gina Becerra and comedian Ray Sani. Molly Crabapple, you can find her work online at mollycrabapple.com and on Twitter at mollycrabapple. And um, check us out on the Katie Halper Show on iTunes and on SoundCloud and Tumblr. And we will see you next week. Thank you so much. Mm